Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, this is the third of our three episodes about spooky things, zombies, werewolves, ghosts, golems, other things that go bump in the night. Yay! So last time, last time, as you hopefully remember, we talked about werewolves, both the French and the Jewish varieties. We talked about zombies, golems, yes. and uh, revenants, sort of generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also talked about some of the bigger anxieties, I think, that some of these things point to um, the liminal liminalness of yes, liminality. Yes, the, yes, the liminality of different types of monsters and transformations, death as a sort of grand human anxiety. Yes, um, and the question of, I guess, creating monsters to serve as sort of a weapon or assistant. I don't know. Yeah, weapons usually. Golems are usually sort of for protection, right? So Yeah. Well they explain both the the danger, right? But also might provide protection. Yeah. The um yeah. So today we're gonna keep on going. With vampires, everybody's favorite. Probably not the type that um, sparkle or have um, appealing <laughs> British accents. Who are now um, playing Batman, yes. Is he what? <laughs> what? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Except, oh my um, gosh, I we're recording this way ahead of time. So they've closed down production right now because he also got diagnosed with COVID. Oh no! Yes. You'd think vampires would not... I don't know, that they'd be immune, but I guess bats are not, maybe. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That, so that explains But vampires it. can turn into bats, right, in modern vampire parlance, so... Yes. No, you'd think it would all work out, but... Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the, so production has been halted briefly on The Batman. The Batman, yes. Okay. Yeah, so we'll see we'll see where that's at by the time we're actually releasing this. Yep. Um But he does not sparkle. He does not sparkle. And <laughs> his hair is much more brown nowadays than it was back in his buffy yes. days. Um, I will say that I am unclear on not having actually read the books or seen the movies why those vampires sparkled. I don't know. It seems weird. I mean, we might as well jump into this because, yes. okay, we talked Let's last time werewolves vampires. are sort of about transformation, right? Yes. And the anxieties around transformation, but also some things that need to be explained. Mm hmm. So, like the Eucharist, how does that transformation work? Um, like or people getting taken into heaven. Yeah, transformation can be positive or negative, right? Like there's yes. there's good werewolves who are just, you know, looking for help in some way or to be helpful. And then there's 
angry werewolves who will bite you. Yes. Um, but also the interesting idea that, um, you know, that sort of anxieties about this <laughs> can be explained then in really interesting ways. So um, it's very much like the seventh seal where our hero, right? This disillusioned knight, brilliant film. If there's anyone listening to this who hasn't seen it, you should definitely go watch this film. It's a brilliant and amazing and fantastic. Um, but our hero, right? This knight, cynical, um, really wants to believe in God. He no longer does. He's been to the Crusades. He saw it was terrible. You know, he just thinks basically people are making a giant mess and nobody's watching. There's a plague, death, famine, right? We got seventh seal. I mean, we have all the horsemen that are stuck in the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he sees death. Death is a character in the seventh seal. But the existence of death does not imply the existence of anything greater than the natural world. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting point, right? Death can exist. Death does exist in the universe. But that does not mean that there is a god. Mm-hmm. right? And he desperately wants to believe in god. Um, and so there's a woman being burned to death as a witch, and she supposedly sees the devil, and he's asking her what it looks like, you know, because essentially if the devil exists, then God must as well. Mm-hmm. And this is a great commentary. Um, we may not see God, right? It's much harder to sort of see the divine, theoretically, right? You might not be worthy, but the devil should be everywhere, right? Right. Um, so that you should be able to see. But if the devil exists, then God also exists, because they are part of the same structure. Right? Sure. You can't have one without the other in Christianity. Right? Um, so, if you're looking for God as a Christian, then the devil would be proof of God's existence. Um, which is a sort of fascinating way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Right? This idea that they, but they are part of the same ideological structure. So one, therefore, proves the existence of the other. Yeah. And I feel like in some religions, obviously, there has been, you know, basically a hell without necessarily having any sort of heaven. Sure. So this is potentially much more of a a Christian ideology. Yes. Well, because in some cases... um, you know, the afterlife you want can be different things, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, in some cases, it's not so much a heaven, it's more that, you know, you'll be reborn as a better person on Earth. Yeah. You know, but if you're not that lucky, you might end up in a hell before you finally get reborn as like a worm or something, you oh, know? yes. So yeah, there are different ways of looking at this, um, obviously, but this is very much a, you know, Christian framework. It's a deconstruction of a lot of brilliant ideas that did exist in the Middle Ages, but of course are also very modern. Mm-hmm. You know, Bergman, it's amazing. And essentially, it's also, by the way, it is in, in Swedish. So, <laughs> you know, you'll be getting some subtitles. It's in black and white, but it's super brilliant. Um, but as he's talking to her, um, she says, well, I see him all the time, right? Everyone says, don't you see him around me? Mm-hmm. Um, and he realizes that, of course, she's not actually a witch, right? 
um, that she is, and he, by the way, so Max von Sydow is playing our hero here. Um, it's brilliant and amazing. I mean, watch it, watch it, watch it. All right. Um, but he realizes very quickly that she is not a witch, right? She's this young woman who, for whatever reason, you know, the townspeople are taking out their fear on, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. She might live in a sort of liminal position. Is she alone? Probably, right? Does she sort of live in a hut on the edge of the woods? Whatever it is, you know, but these sort of, right, it's one of those things about witches, the way that they are frequently mythologized, at least, this sense of them being these sort of liminal figures, right? Women who are maybe older. In this case, she's not. She's younger, right? So there's something else going on, but that um, puts them in a position on sort of the outskirts of society, um, and then essentially turns them into sacrificial lambs, right? Mm-hmm. That when society needs to take out its anger, its fear, whatever it is, um, they look to that person. This is a person we can sacrifice for the good of society. They're already on the margins. Sure. Um, so he realizes she is not a witch. And that the commentary, you know, she's basically been convinced by people that she's in league with the devil. But she certainly has never seen the devil. The people who have said this about her are just scapegoating her. Um, and so he gives her something essentially like put her to sleep so she won't suffer, theoretically. Um, but it's this very pointed moment because he's so desperate even for a glimpse of the devil to know that God exists. Mm-hmm. right? And he is, he is not given that. Um, there is there is no proof. There's still no proof. Right. Um, anyway, so this sort of interesting idea of the ways in which, right, something like a werewolf, um, that's a transformation that is not necessarily divine. Right. But if a transformation like that exists, you can believe that certain types of divine transformation exist. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, zombies and revenants. If the dead can resurrect, not well... Not very, like, completely, shall we say, but um, nonetheless, there's a type of resurrection there. Um, Then the sort of miracle of Christ's resurrection becomes possible, right? Um, And kind of like, um, it points to the the end of days resurrection, right? Where people get reunited with their bodies, because the zombie resurrection is, is often... I mean, it is a bodily resurrection without the soul, essentially. Presumably, that, like, yes. this is the hungry flesh. Yeah. Um, but that's why the funny thing of, like, where we ended last time, the revenants in the churchyard and stuff, mm-hmm. that they do remember who they are, right? So it's a very intriguing commentary. The soul is theoretically you, but also, clearly, it's not the only mm-hmm. you, right? If If a revenant still remembers who it was and still goes through the motions and in this case even like they're still sort of you know going to mass mm-hmm. apparently yeah. <laughs> i mean um it, there's something really interesting about that very interesting point because um nowadays we tend to look at these things in terms of either materialism which is the philosophy that you know the body and brain are really the same the same thing right that that there's yes. not a separate <laughs> soul that rides around and animates the body and mm-hmm. dualism, which is, you know, Cartesian yes. uh, philosophy that you do have, like, a soul that drives you the around. The ghost and the machine, as it were. Yes. So <laughs> the the idea that you could die 
and presumably your soul goes somewhere, but also your mm-hmm. body still remembers things, right, about right. who you were. It's it's a different um we don't really I don't really have a word for that philosophically speaking. Yeah. Right? Cuz it's like well, splitting Mhm. Well, there are a few commentaries, right? One of them is the possibility that the soul hasn't moved on the way it should. Mhm. That is a possibility. Um, but otherwise, yes, right? There's a definite sense, not just in the Middle Ages, but also in the Middle Ages, <laughs> um, that the body really intrinsically remembers things that it mm-hmm. does, right? Um, so if the soul is sort of you in all the best ways, and also maybe the worst ways, right, um, that nonetheless, that the body having housed the soul, right, having gone through all the motions, um, continues to carry a lot of that with it. Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, I think there's a very important reason I said the ghost in the machine. And of course, this is not only sort of how Descartes works, but also (laughs) um, a commentary sort of once we move forward hundreds of years to electricity and we start to get robots, um, the idea of the ways in which, you know, uh, code can sometimes reshape itself in little ways or little things can happen that are unexpected, right? That are sort of called the ghost in the machine, but also for people who are really interested in intelligence and sort of artificial intelligence, there's a question of could it ever make that leap? Yes. Right? This is what sci-fi posits frequently. Well, I'll um, point out that the idea of like having some sort of automaton not necessarily driven by electricity, but driven by gears or steam or water somehow is like actually a very old idea. Oh, absolutely. Automata go way back. (laughs) I did research on this for a novella I recently wrote that the ideas go back to, you know, the time of the ancient Greeks and Hephaestus. Um, Uh So, yeah. And they built machines back then. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. um, there's some famous ones, you know, with gears and yeah. Water stuff, they would do various things, yeah. Famous um priest, a monk, a praying monk that they built in um Spain. Uh mm-hmm. and I will find a link to the Radio Lab episode where they talked about this, but he was like a little automata who could walk up and down and like wave his rosary around and um he was built because the king of Spain said to God, basically, when his heir was sick, uh, if you heal him, I will give you a miracle. <laughs> Which I guess is the sort of deal you get to make if you are the king. Right. Um, but it worked, and they did it, so, you know, awesome. pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, there are a lot of famous automata. Um, and there's... An automaton in, I believe it's in Hugo, isn't it? In the movie Hugo, that's based on yeah. a real one. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of that. many. I mean, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, there, there are quite a few, especially if you go back just a few hundred years, um, some very complicated ones. But you can go back, um, you know, if you, if you do go back sort of all the way to the Greeks, there are some even that sort of get thought of as mini computers, mm-hmm. because in some ways um, they were so close 
Yeah. Right. And um, this question of, you know, if, if they had discovered electricity, they basically would have gotten immediately to where we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mean, in a, in a certain sense, a computer is just a way of doing math quickly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. how you but, make um, the jump from that to like Doom 2 or something, um, mm-hmm. I'm still working on the theory there, but yes. it's just, <laughs> it's just yes. a lot of very small monkeys doing math very quickly inside yes, your exactly. laptop. Yep. Um, yes, I'm a like professional a computer imp- person. Takes you can, the picture. You can believe me. <laughs> yes. Um, Terry Pratchett, the imp, takes the picture. And, yes. You know. Yes. Yeah. A lot mm-hmm. of very small imps doing math very quickly. And then yes. you get, you know, your video game or your podcast or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the uh, Antikythera mechanism is one of the famous ones they dug up recently. Oh, yes. You know, from below the sea. Um, I mean, they, it was retrieved over a hundred years ago. Um, but it just sort of took them a long time to really figure out what they thought it was and all of this stuff. Right. Um, it didn't, it didn't like being on the sea floor for hundreds of years wasn't especially great for it. (laughs) I mean, thousands, gosh, I mean, it must've been from, they found it in like 1901 or two. Oh yes. Wikipedia dates it as far back as 200 BCE. Apparently. So, I guess that is a while. A couple thousand years. A couple thousand. But they have basically, you know, they sort of figured out it was pretty soon, but they didn't want to break it apart. Mm -hmm. So the more modern, you know, you get in equipment, not just x-ray, but, you know, all sorts of things that they can use to scan through it so they don't have to break it. um, You start to figure it out. And so people more recently (laughs) um, have recreated it, basically. Hmm. Um, the past like 10 years, 20 years or so, they've started to build recreations based on sort of the most up-to-date wow. um, info that they can gather from zapping it with whatever they zap it with. <laughs> yeah, so there's some really interesting recreations that they've made. But it's, yeah, you know, gears that used to be, you'd build little miles of the universe, right? Or little calendars or, um, you know, time. I mean, so you, it would sort of give you these mm-hmm. different things. And that's that's what this did. But, you know, there is that sense of um, what what is life. So we did talk last time about, like, Golem and Frankenstein. Right. Um, and, of course, his monster. Uh, but what sort of what is life, right? Yes. So, um, yeah, so the idea of, you know, robots, and if they have a consciousness, or at what point would they have a consciousness, mm-hmm. um, in a sense, you know, um, the people the revenants of the Middle Ages are kind of robots. You know, they did not have that term in any way. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, But they sort of thought of them as that. I think once robots, once automata were sort of invented, you, you had a better word for what that was. Right. But the idea that people could continue to go through the motions, even without a soul, you know, Mm -hmm. retroactively, this is how we would now think of it. Um, It is worth pointing out that although Revenants and zombies could be, da- you know, they're called revenants, really. Zombies is a little more modern. These are okay. revenants. They're the same thing. But zombies, I think, generally tend to be terrifying. Right. Or completely, you know, undead. So brain dead. Definitely not mm-hmm. remembering who they were. Whereas revenants frequently do kind of remember. They can be dangerous, but they don't have to be. Okay. Um, they don't even have to be necessarily, um, you know, the 
Christian term would be pagan mm -hmm. <laughs> or anti-Christian, right? I mean, if they can be in a churchyard or saying mess, then they're they're clearly it's not Christians. even like a vampire, right? Yeah, so there's there's still somewhere in this continuum. Interestingly, presumably again because the resurrection is important, they're just kind of doing it at the wrong time or something yeah. has clearly gone wrong, right? Um, which also brings us to something else about horror generally, right? Horror is a genre, but also where monsters and all these things come from, that usually it's, right, you're trying to explain something, but also frequently there's something that's gone wrong, mm -hmm. right? So burial ritual. Either somebody made a mistake. Yeah. yeah, you did something wrong, or... You delved too deeply into secrets that man was not meant to know. Or yes. Um... Yeah, so Rituals you did something wrong, a burial ritual went wrong, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a sort of interesting commentary. This is definitely um, different from... So one of the things I think we didn't talk about last time, um, Norse mythology, we have, first of all, of course, the undead warriors, well, they're dead, but they're living in Valhalla. <laughs> right. And they're waiting for the time when they will be needed, basically. Um, so you have a giant army of dead warriors in Valhalla, you know, they're brought up by the Valkyrie, um, waiting for when they'll be needed. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a separate myth that, there's a little bit of gray area in how these are connected or not connected, but there's actually a separate myth, um, in which, um, a woman is kidnapped, Hildur is kidnapped, um, and her father comes looking for her, and she sort of welcomes him, but he's already you know, ready to attack her husband. Um, and so they fight, their armies fight. Um, and every night she goes out to the battlefield and resurrects all the s soldiers so that they can oh. fight again the next day. And this will continue to, to Ragnarok, basically. Okay. Um, so that's an interesting sort of commentary because it's a little unclear maybe from the original myth legend story um exactly how she's treating this um one could read it <laughs> if one is so inclined as a sort mm -hmm. of commentary on you know men shouldn't be meddling with women you sh mm -hmm. definitely shouldn't kidnap them from their dads right but also dads should Maybe not just come in barging in, ready to kill people just because, you know, like... <laughs> right. Either way, she doesn't really get a say. Um, so she's kind of... Is she punishing both of them for all eternity? Which is a kind of interesting way to look at it. Um, there are obviously other ways to look at it. It is like, <laughs> gosh, she has to do all the work here. Well, she just resurrects like, them, and then she watches <laughs> them fight all day. I mean, it's yeah, I guess. not a bad gig in some ways. Um, but anyway, so that's... That's a great sort of legend. Sure, if this were a, if this were a modern story, we would have some sort of term to go along with it, like spiritual labor or something. Oh, sure, yes, similar to emotional labor right. or. But something. if you assume she's taking out her vengeance, I mean, she doesn't have to be doing this. Yeah. So that's sort of my point that you could see this uh, as her sort of taking a kind of eternal revenge on both of them, mm -hmm. really, right? Sort of for different different reasons. Sure, but this idea also of, the, of an army who is maybe dead, maybe undead. <laughs> um, you get things, you get variations of this a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you get incredible things, like the Terracotta Army, of course, um, in China, right. which is extraordinary. 
um, and is sort of assumed to be, right? You bury them as terracotta they- warriors and they will be with you in the afterlife, right? They were, were they Chin Dynasty? Ooh, I would have to look it up. I th- they're real I think old. so. Um, we s- yeah, they're from like 200 BCE. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, Chin Dynasty. The first Chin Emperor, actually. Yeah, and unbeknownst to many, <laughs> right? In addition to the warriors, of course, you have horses, you have all of this stuff. It's incredible. But mm-hmm. actually, the they've excavated only a tiny, tiny section of the entire, what's really an entire underground compound. Yeah, it's like a, like they built a mountain on top of it almost. Like yeah. it's not just a, it's not, it's like, like got they call gardens it a mountain, and lakes, and, but it's, you know, yeah. it's a recreation basically of an underground palace. I mean, an under, it's a recreation of a, of a palace with all of the yeah. things and also all of the warriors and all of the sort of all of the stuff, right, that he would need. He being the emperor, um, in the afterlife mm-hmm. to live the way in the afterlife that he did in the present life. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and as I recall from our trip to see some of the statues in when they were at the Art Institute, um, Field Museum. Oh, Field Museum. I couldn't remember where they were. Yeah. Oops. That that one of the reasons they haven't opened all of the tomb is something like they've recreated some of the rivers and lakes. Mm-hmm. Inside the tomb with mercury. Yes. Which is a problem. But brilliant. <laughs> for living people, yes. obviously. Not for, not for the dead. Not for dead people. Nope. Um, yeah. It's amazing, though. Um, that was a fantastic yeah. exhibit. Yeah. I mean, they're so incredible. It is so incredible. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but that idea that they've only uncovered just this tiny stretch, you know, of what would... Yeah. Is just amazing. Um but that idea, right, of sort of the army, um, you also get things like the Wild Hunt, which is not directly related, but a little related to this idea of sort of the warriors in Valhalla. Um, anyway, so this whole sense, right, um, this is all different from vampires, who are clearly also about resurrection, but very much about the anxiety of what that mm-hmm. means in a way that I would say zombies have become very much about that same anxiety. Right. But right. the sort of medieval version of the revenant where they potentially remember who they are is really right. Straddles that line a little more. The modern zombies mm-hmm. obviously very much about the terror of death and decay. Um, yeah. It's not like the middle ages didn't have skeletons walking all over the place as memento mori. I mean, they absolutely did in all paintings and everywhere. Um, but there is nonetheless, um, you know, death is not seen as this mindless thing that's just out to get you, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the way sort of zombies are today. Um, now, when you get to vampires, you change things a little bit because vampires, of course, aren't just sort of undead. They're predatory. Yes. Right. In a way that, again, zombies today are, but they haven't always been. Right. I feel like in modern vampire stories, and I say like modern meaning like Since probably Bram Stoker, yep. <laughs> yeah, um, onward. There's a very large sense of like this fear of a f- foreign people, yes. right? Vampires are never from where you're from, right? They're from Transylvania, right? And that they are <laughs> yes <laughs> somehow taking advantage of your women, yes, right. Oh, yeah, sexuality is huge. That it's like that there's this yeah. very hyper sexual yes. thing 
with all the blood and the the heaving bosoms and the yeah. nighttime creeping yes. about. Yeah, vampires traditionally are very illicit. I feel like that might be very Victorian. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Um, that being said, it's a wonder. It is a sort of wonderful take, right? Because you do need monsters that talk about this. Stuff. One feels that like Byron must have been the original vampire, really, yes. <laughs> Lord Byron. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you need monsters who sort of talk about these things that you're yeah. not willing to talk about as a society. Right. So vampires absolutely co- right. They cover sex. You're not willing to talk about it, but it's there. You have to yeah. somehow. And it's dangerous. Yeah. You have to warn people. Yes. Um, so yeah, vampires are perfect for that. Um, they were not originally about mm-hmm. that. That That is certainly a later, basically, Victorian take. Um, it's still our modern take, though. I mean, we started with the glowing vampires. Arguably, this is why they sparkle, obviously. Right. Right? Because there is the sexual quality to them. And that's mm-hmm. just taken for granted these yeah. days. <laughs> I figured right. it was um, also one of the reasons why... Like, they had to have some sort of reason in, in in Twilight why vampires usually don't go out during the day. And maybe it's because you would notice them sparkling. I don't know. Maybe. I have this no idea. The, I, I haven't read the book. <laughs> I've only read people right. complaining about the I also don't know book, for sure that so, they don't go out yeah. in the day. Do I they? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, va- most vampires don't, but some do. Yes. You know. Anyways. Um... I do also want to give a shout out to Buffy the Vampire Slayer here, of course, the TV series, yes. Sarah Michelle Gellar and company, Joss Whedon, um, because it's all things great. And there mm-hmm. we are. Yay. They handled, um, they handled a lot of the uh, anxiety switch. about sex and vampires very well, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's about teenagers having yes. sex, basically. Right. And also fighting demons. And also it's funny. Yes. But also you got, a, you know, women heroes... Which is mm-hmm. the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, which is great. Um, so, that being said, we definitely had, <laughs> right, they they definitely do the um, can't go out in the day, don't have a soul, but interestingly can reclaim one, mm-hmm. which is fascinating and fun. Um, they used a lot of that mythology real well. And particularly, of course, Vampires eventually become very, very closely tied to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So they clearly, they come from a type of monster. We'll sort of get to more basic monsters, but they clearly come from a type of monster that's sort of about, that's predatory and that deals with blood. But then vampires, as we get to know them, really become specifically connected to Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're this inverse of things like the Eucharist, right? Um, where... You partake of Christ's blood, which, of course, right, the wine becomes. Um, vampires drink actual human blood to continue to survive, right? Mm, and it's not about okay. their soul survival. They don't have one anymore. It's about their bodily survival, mm-hmm. right? So you get the inverse. So they, unlike revenants, as I said, right, um, vampires very are are clearly sort of tied to this inverse of Christianity. And that means, of course, crosses are dangerous to mm-hmm. them, <laughs> Right. Um, driving a stake through the heart. This is presumably a sort of take again on the cross itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Unlike, you know, Jesus being nailed right. to the cross. Bringing the cross you know, to get the vampire. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Pierced through the heart. That's it. Um, many people would point out would probably kill 
not just vampires, but other types of people as yes, well. Yes, most things will die <laughs> if you get pierced through the heart. <laughs> I um, know. <laughs> very effectively. Yes. But the point but, is, yeah. most undead things do not get killed by being mm-hmm. pierced through the heart. Because they're undead. It doesn't work. But it works on vampires. And that is because of them being kind of the antithesis of what is good and Christian. So um, is it actually the cross that drives them away, or is it the person's belief in the cross? No, it's the cross. Yeah. And that was a great, actually, thing in Buffy, because crosses always worked. Um, yeah. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if the person holding it was Jewish, um, which Willow was mm-hmm. Jewish. Alison Hannigan's character. The witch. Um, <laughs> yay. Very powerful witch by the end of the series. Um, it also didn't matter. I can't entirely remember, but I have vague memories of there being a few sort of jokes about this. Um, it didn't matter if the vampire had been hmm. Jewish either, I think. <laughs> Which is a little bit funnier. But of course, that's sort of the point, right? When you get sort of bitten, right? Um, you know, you are then dragged into the, the mythology. Uh-huh. Whether you want it right? or not. You don't really get a okay. choice. Basically. They've seen, I, mean, I know like there have been movies you know? <laughs> that made fun of this, either with the vampire ignoring yes. the cross because it was Jewish, or I think in 30 Days of Night, the vampires are atheists. Um, right. So. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, one, there's much fun to be had. Mm-hmm. But Buffy's take was sort of, you know, just like baptism, you don't have to believe in it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mm. work. Right. Um, that which in some s- sense, if you're going to have a show about something like this, is a perfectly reasonable expectation. Rituals have to work, mm-hmm. right? If you live in a horror universe, horror exists because something went wrong with the ritual. If the ritual is done correctly, it has mm-hmm. to work. It doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. Okay. Right? It still worked. So you might not believe in baptism, but baptism still took mm-hmm. right <laughs> um similarly you might not be christian but you get turned into a vampire you are now part of that ideological structure okay. right that's just how it goes <laughs> so your beliefs when you were alive no longer matter um plus you've lost your soul so mm-hmm. again it also definitely doesn't really matter right <laughs> right um that being said this does mean right vampires do provide a different type of um anxiety even before we get to sex. So uh, before that, um, the anxiety very much is more about this idea of predation, right? Um, and the sort of anti... Um, and so they're very much about predation and the anxiety of um, what, right? If you, Christianity exists, right? The same way the devil exists, God exists. So Christianity exists, but it also has to mean that there is this, right, inverse... Mm-hmm negative inverse to all of these positive things, right? So vampires sucking people's blood to keep their bodies alive, right? These sorts of anxieties um, that sort of you assume have to exist because there has to be balance, Mm -hmm. basically. Um, One of the interesting things is this means because vampires are so tied to Christianity um, that there are not as many Jewish vampires. We talked last time about Jewish werewolves. Golem, of course. Um, But there are some... Hmm. So I did want to bring this up because uh, you would sort of think that there weren't right. any, but that isn't entirely true. So one of the big stories, um, there's an article about this. 
um, by Epstein and Robinson called The Soul, <laughs> Evil Spirits and the Undead, okay. Vampire's Death and Burial in Jewish Folklore. Um, it's almost and, worth going to graduate school just to get to write stuff like that, I think. Yes. <laughs> um, and so they, one of the things they discuss in length is this uh, story about um, a woman. This story was first recorded by an Egyptian rabbi um, whose sort of official name, uh, David Ben Solomon Ibn Abi Zimra, okay. but sort of known as Radbaz. Um, and he records this story in the 15th century, sort of, um, yeah, anyway, 15th century. And um, it's presumably, he's born in Spain, by the way, uh, it's like 1479. And um, this story, he got from an anonymous source. So we don't know how old the story mm -hmm. is. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's at least from the 1400s. Um, and this is about a woman... Jewish woman, of course, um, who died and she was not buried for three days okay. and her body wasn't guarded. Mm -hmm. um, and basically she turned into a vampire. Mm. Uh, this, and the explanation is essentially that because right, burial practice was ignored. So first of all, Jewish burial is supposed to take place immediately. Yeah. Um, and if it can't for whatever reason, you guard the body nonstop until you can bury mm -hmm. it. Um, and the reason is things like this, right? If you don't, a little demon might come in and possess the body, which apparently is what happened, right? Sort of a vampiric demon um, comes in and possesses her and she becomes a vampire. And, um, you know, this is sort of discovered eventually. And the moral of the story is clearly about burial practice, right? So we have a very, very clear element of, right, if rituals are not performed correctly, there are consequences. Yes. And those consequences, of course, are sort of horror-based. Um, and it's a it's a really sort of interesting moment because it is unusual. Um, you know, she comes back, she's sucking blood from people. Um, and that is not common for Jewish folklore. Um, there is sort of one other big exception. Um, this is Trachtenberg, who's sort of the big name in a lot of this stuff, sort of Jewish supernatural beliefs. Okay. <laughs> if you're interested, the academic take on these things. Um, and he recounts a story um, of a apparently sort of type of creature known as an estuary, um, which is sort of vampiric. Um, it does drain the blood from people and so on. Um, female, apparently. Which is another interesting take that these, whereas we tend mm -hmm. to think of vampires, especially in Christian tradition, as frequently male. Right. They can be female, right? But we think of male vampires as sort of the dominant, they turn women into vampires, you know. Yeah. Again, the sort of sex. Um, these tend to be female. Um, and there is clearly the sort of fear, um, presumably the reason why instead of sort of you know, Jews stayed away from this because not only Christianity, but also because of things like blood libel, mm -hmm. right? Um, even Jewish demons didn't like blood. But there are a few exceptions. Um, and presumably the reason that they're female has something to do kind of with um, menstruation, mm -hmm. right? So life and death. So women, right, in life, 
menstruation is life-giving, but in death, you know, women will drink your blood. Sure. <laughs> Basically. Um, anyway. Seems fair. So there, so there are a couple takes like this. Um, so this is the sort of Jewish take on the, on the vampire. Yeah. Um, it's also worth remembering, of course, that Vlad the Impaler, interestingly, is given in various mod- more modern versions of the, you know, Dracula story as being the original Dracula. Right. Because that was sort of his nickname, right? The dragon. Mm-hmm. The little dragon. Dracul. Dracula. Um, and he was Christian. Yes. <laughs> um, he was horrifying, but he was Christian. And so he's actually looked at as a Christian hero in certain areas. Um, he, some of his brothers, in fact, did convert to Islam. Hmm. He is not one of them. Um, and so they, they decided that Islam was a maybe better and less barbaric mm-hmm. tradition in some ways. Um, and while Vlad did not convert, he definitely went a long way towards proving that Christianity can be barbaric. Um, which is why he has this very mixed lineage sort of, or legacy, um, remembered as a Christian hero in certain areas, like his old stomping grounds, yeah. but remembered, of course, as Vlad the Impaler to pretty much everybody else. Um, but it is interesting then that, right, if we think of him as sort of the origin of the modern vampire, um, that it also ends up with this sort of interesting sense, maybe almost of guilt, Mm -hmm. right, about the sort of barbarism, essentially, right, of certain Christian so-called heroes. Yeah. Right. Or the things that Christianity has done. Um, so there are some interesting things there. Um... But yeah, so those are our Jewish vampires. Um, it's worth pointing out that, you know, sort of in addition to this, um, and probably better known um, of the Jewish demon. So as we move out into sort of monsters and demons more generally, um, we have Lilith, <laughs> um, who is, I guess you could consider like the first female demon. Yes. Uh, Adam's first wife. Right. Um, and she has sometimes been called a vampire, but we would probably think of her more as a succubus. Mm-hmm. So you explained that where this comes from is that the creation of women specifically is described twice, I think, in the book of Genesis. Well, men and women, yeah. yeah. Creation is described twice in the book of Genesis. People are created either, as we all know, at the end of creation, mm-hmm. right? Right before the seven days are up or before resting on the seventh day. Um, but then the creation of Adam and Eve get their own story. Yeah. So and, rabbis um, felt the need to explain this seeming discrepancy by saying that Adam had been married and this woman, Lilith, uh, demanded equality with Adam. This is how I heard the story anyway. Yes. Um, and he said no, and so she left. Yes. Um, which is one reason why... Uh, Lilith Fair was named for her, and she's sort of a figure in modern American feminism of a particular era of, um, I don't know, long skirts Absolutely. and folk yeah. music and, yep. you know. But she's still a great character because she is looked at. Um, no, I like her a lot. As sort of yeah. the mother of, you know, demons and all sorts of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yes, there's a sense so equality or maybe even superiority mm-hmm. 
Um, and then, and then the creation of Eve from the rib, the idea is that they're equal, but they're also kind of the same flesh, right? So that she can't feel that she's superior to him. There's also, I give a shout out to Sandman because I literally just taught this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Parliament of Rooks in my grad class, um, where he brings up a very little known, but real Midrash that adds a third wife in there because rabbis also felt the need to explain why Adam is put to sleep, right? So if we have the original creation of men and women, and then another creation where we really talk about the creation of sort of man and woman and how Eve is taken from the rib. Yes. One of the things mentioned is how Adam is put to sleep. And they were sort of like, well, why? Why did you have to put him to sleep? Mm -hmm. And so they posited after the Lilith thing (laughs) that there was an intermediary wife who was created. um, But Adam watched her creation. Mm -hmm. And because he saw that she was essentially, you know, a bag of meat, right? Blood, (laughs) muscle, whatever, entrails, that he couldn't stand to look at her, right? Confronting your own mortality. That is the whole point. Um, Even if at the time he was technically immortal, right? Right. Um, That this was sort of too horrifying. And um, so that she was sort of disappeared and that this is why he was put to sleep for the final sort of moment. Um, Because obviously, you know, God could have taken his room without putting him to sleep. I mean, that's, but that that was sort of why. Mm Mm-hmm. So that he wouldn't see the mysteries of creation. Um, Which is usually the interpretation, I think, because he wasn't to see the mysteries of creation. But the interesting specificity Mm -hmm. of of that other Midrash. Anyway, so there we have the whole rundown. Um, But yeah, so Lilith becomes this very famous character that um, really does kind of originate in Jewish folklore. um, Of sort of the mother of demons and kind of a, you know, sort of demon herself, succubus. Now, with all these female demons we've mentioned, we do want to mention that the Dybbuk oh, yes. is very famous, and usually male. So we do want to say there are absolutely plenty of male demons, <laughs> and the Dybbuk is the big one. Um, and so now we're getting towards ghost territory, right? A Dybbuk is the spirit of a dead person that enters a living body mm-hmm. and possesses it. Um, and that is usually male. And they're super famous. Of course, there are movies and plays and all sorts of things about them. Um, and... Again, there's interesting crossover with a lot of this stuff, because vampires are frequently looked at, right, something has to happen for you to become a vampire. Revenants, they're just sort of reanimated, Mm -hmm. right? It's not entirely clear. But a vampire, there is something usually a little akin to having a demon possess you, right? There's clearly something, um, which again, you know, vampires have to bite you for you to become one, um... There's something sort of contagious, right? There's this thing that's passed in, sure. right? Like a pathogen. Um, and of course, in modern parlance, I mean, they have very much become a part of sort of um, sexually transmitted disease lore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that way, right? So Dybbuk's, again, sim- similar, right? The, it's a sort of possession. But in this case, not by a demon, right? Just by a someone who has died mm-hmm. and their spirit, right? Instead of becoming a ghost, they Wonder. go and start possessing people. Yeah. Which is often, like, the case with ghosts, right? That they do seem to have some, I don't know, unfinished business that prevents them from leaving. Um, in yes. this case, in the case of Dibbuks, it's often, you know, they're malicious in some way, but... Yeah. 
Yeah, so ghosts ghosts are great, right? Ghosts are the catch-all for everything, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, and ghosts, yeah, unfinished business, right? You did something evil in life and you can't move on, um, or there's something you didn't do in life, you can't move mm-hmm. on, or you're in danger of being forgotten, like oh, none of your descendants remember you, and so you can't move on because there's nobody praying for you. All of these sorts of possibilities exist, right? But yeah, ghosts are tied still. For, they have a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, again, a little unclear, right? Revenants, vampires. You might be able to explain why someone becomes one, right? The woman is not buried properly, and so yeah. the demon can possess her. It's not quite the same, right? It's it's not as obvious. Whereas with a ghost, pretty much ghosts show up because there's something unfinished, right? They have a mission. And usually it means when it's done, they can go away. Or once they've been satisfied, they will go away. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so there, so ghosts, there really, there is the sense of you can complete that ritual, right? You can make whatever it is right. Mm-hmm. And then they will move on. Right. So we should mention the hungry ghost. Yay. Which is a genre, you know, it's a whole, enti- it's a genre, I guess, yeah, of ghost. Mm-hmm. It's a type of ghost. There are actually many, many, many subtypes of hungry ghosts. <laughs> um, but this is uh, very much sort of China, Japan, Buddhist, um, Vietnam also. Anyway, so Buddhist, but anywhere, but also especially kind of China and Japan. Um, and this is very much a sense of everyone becomes a ghost, we can compare this also a little bit to um, Mexican, the Day of the Dead sort of rituals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, any any culture that has a sense of ancestors, um, Yoruba, Egugun, right? Um, lots and lots of cultures have the sense of ancestors as being very real presences mm-hmm. that you have festivals for and you sort of acknowledge them um, and then you make them happy and hopefully they help you out, but certainly they don't hurt you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the idea of ancestor worship of in Vietnam, even though um, I knew a lot of people who were, you know, ostensibly non-religious, like there's been a communist turnover there, Um but they would still, like, they still <laughs> yes. had, you know, the, the paraphernalia that you would expect, the um, the little altar in their house with the photographs of mm-hmm. deceased relatives and incense and things like that. Yeah. Interestingly, that um, the Aikido dojo I went to, mm-hmm. like, it's traditional in Aikido dojos to bow to a portrait of uh, the founder of, of Aikido, O-sensei, but in... In Vietnam, we also lit incense to him every morning. So these traditions are, like, very persistent. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, And there's a... I mean, there's a sense why that would be. Because Mm -hmm. we remember others so that then they will remember us. Right? Or that we ourselves will be remembered. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a good tradition to have. Right? Because it keeps the dead from sort of fully dying. Which is sort of the point, right? So all of these sorts of rituals, um, I might as well give a shout out, having mentioned the Agungun, um, to Olesinka, and particularly Death of the King's Horseman, um, in which we get a great commentary on colonialism, and our colonial villains, basically, are <laughs> appropriating and completely misunderstanding and sort of destroying the ritual of Agungun. Um, but... Yeah, the idea of ancestor mm-hmm. 
um, remembrance is incredibly important. And so there is a sense in a lot of these cultures that um, people continue mm-hmm. to exist as what we might call ghosts, right? Um, even though they're not, they, but they sort of are, right? Because they're still around. <laughs> so the, the West might look at them as ghosts, but that is not, they aren't thought of in that sense. This is a natural part of death. It's just you're yeah. still around as long as people remember you, and then as they slowly forget you, you sort of fade out, right? Um, and we see that in Coco, Pixar's Coco. Um, there's a great um, horror manga artist I love a lot, uh, and he has a short story like that, um, where this family like lives mm-hmm. with their, you know, the ghosts of their deceased ancestors um whom they can continue to see but then as you move down like the great great grandparents are almost disappeared because almost nobody remembers them anymore and you know anyway i think as we're taping this Hmm? um we actually maybe just passed uh the holiday of ghost ghost festival or um jong yuan jue oh where people do things like burn burn ghost money and things like that Mm mm-hmm yeah. Well, and so there are a couple things, right? Because you have the sort of traditional um, ancestor remembrance, but also um, when it comes to hungry ghosts who are ghosts who are not normal, right? They're, they're stuck. They're around. Mm-hmm. And they did something wrong. They have unfinished business. They were probably evil. Maybe they were just neglected. Maybe they don't have anyone to remember them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever it is, right? Usually they were greedy or angry. Especially they refuse to give charity to, like, monks or beggars. That's a great way to become a ghost. A a hungry ghost. Yes. Um, And they're super needy, right? So they do get special stuff at festivals where you, like, feed them and you leave stuff for them. And then you leave lit lanterns so they can sort of find their way back to, I don't know, what in the West we would probably call hell. That's not fair, you know. But they're a part of the afterlife where they sort of hang out and they're not happy. Mm -hmm. Um but you try to do this enough so that you do appease them, right? So that eventually they can let go and go away. <laughs> um, but they're definitely a sort of special type. There are fantastic stories about them all over. They're, you know, still very important. Um, and there's a late 12th century scroll. So gaki is the word in Japan. Um, and there's this late 12th century scroll um, that's the Hungry Ghosts Scroll. Mm-hmm. And it has 36 types, I think, of hungry ghost on wow. it, as well as some discussion explanation. Yeah. And it shows them around. And the, the idea is that they're always there and they're bothering and they're disrupting. You might not be able to see them. Um, maybe you can sometimes see them at night, I think. You can't necessarily see them in there during the day, but they're always there sort of causing trouble. And, you know, they're constantly trying to, like, suck lakes dry or eat up all the food or, you know, whatever it is that whatever greed or anger kept them here. Um, they're sort of tormented. And in the scroll, it's great because you see people going about their everyday lives and then these clearly sort of demonic creatures um, kind of they're tormented and doing things and like standing by water or whatever it is that they're in need of, right? But they're, they're a great sort of um, example of, of this type of ghost. Um, I do want to say that, of course, again, sometimes even ghosts with unfinished business do not turn into this type of ghost. So that is important to mm-hmm. mention. Um, hungry ghosts, it, there usually is something that, you know, they really did wrong. <laughs> um, ghosts with just unfinished business, um, there are some fantastic examples. We already talked in the theater episode 
um, which may or may not have aired yet, but about Atsumori, mm-hmm. which is one of the most famous no plays in Japan. Atsumori is a ghost warrior. Um, and so he gets killed. Uh, he's a young warrior. Um, and he, you know, his um, army is sort of leaving. <laughs> and this is all based, of course, on real wars and people in Japan. Atsumori himself may not have been real, but certainly the war is real. Historic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, runs down to the where the ships are, realizes he's left his flute back at the campsite, um, goes running back to get his flute. By the time he gets back down to the shore, the ships are sailing off without him. And he turns around and the other army is basically like, you know, on the shore. So he has no choice but to fight them. Um, and the warrior who cuts him down goes off to become a monk later because he feels so bad after he looks at the face of this guy and realizes how young he is. He sees he has a flute. He kind of deduces what happened. Right. That he must have gone back for something like his flute and then got left behind. Um, So he becomes a monk to kind of try and atone for this. Um, And in the play, he's arrived at the shrine where Atsumori hangs out as a ghost. The first half, a group of grass cutters come on. Um... And of course, one of them is Atsumori playing the, playing his flute. Grass cutters play flutes the same way, like in the West, you know, pastoral shepherds. Yeah, have like a play for a their flocks or something, right? Yeah, um, and then yeah, exactly. Um, and then in the second half, Atsumori comes on as himself, right? So the ghost warrior, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, and sort of dances out his story for the monk. Um, and then bows and asks for his forgiveness, and the monk sort of asks for Atsumori's forgiveness. You know, they sort of bow to each other. Um, so that that is also a very common element. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another ghost warrior play about Tomoe, uh, Tomoe Gozen, who's a historic um, female warrior. And the play posits that, and this isn't necessarily historically accurate, but the play posits um, that she was not allowed to die with her lord because she was a woman. She was sent away. Um, and so she kills all of these people on her way out of the battlefield. <laughs> and then, sort of, you know, she's an amazing warrior, right? But she's also yes. clearly kind of hoping right. she'll die, but also she wasn't, she was told she couldn't die with mm-hmm. her lord. She fights her way out. She comes back later, finds everybody else dead. Um, and her lord has given her instructions that she should take his stuff back to his home, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so she she does, but she is still hanging around the shrine, and she does have a shrine for real in Japan, at least one. Um, but she's hanging around her shrine because she still has this sort of unfinished feeling, you know, as a warrior, she should have died with her lord, and she wasn't allowed to. Um, sure. And so she has a similar, you know. So you do get ghosts like that. I mean, ghosts who are clearly very sort of honorable people, and they're just here because something, you know. In this case, usually, right, a violent mm-hmm. end is what and they just didn't have time to make peace with yeah. it. Um, and so there's also a great um, play that I think we talked about very briefly, again, from China. This is a medieval play by Guan Haqing, um, who was sort of 1241 to 1320 or okay. so. Uh, and the play is best translated as The Injustice to Do E, but was for a very long time in English known as Snow in Midsummer. Okay, good title. Um, and this is, yeah. And this is, of course, because <laughs> um, Do E, who is our lead character, she is given to this woman who's wealthy who and lends money. Um, and her, Do E's father, when she's a small girl, it's just them, you know, her mom has died, he needs money so he can go take exams and work his way up, you know, right. 
Chinese bureaucracy, like which has been this system. way for like yeah. thousands of years. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, cause this again was written in like the 1200s. So anyway, they still had those exams in like the, the 1940s in Vietnam, I think. Yeah. I absolutely. remember meeting somebody who's, um, I think his father had been a, like a tutor for people who wanted to take the exams. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he, he needs money to go off and do this. So he sort of gives her as an apprentice to this woman, heads off. Um, you know, she's a great apprentice. The woman ends up marrying her to her son. Okay. Um, but then the son dies after just a few years. So then it's just the two of them. Hmm. And, um, there, some people who owe her money, who owe the old woman money, um, decide first, like, they think they maybe will try to kill her. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, no, we could marry her and her young daughter-in-law, you know, Dewey, um, and then all the money will be ours. And so they try to force them into marriage, okay. and Dewey refuses. Um, and so the son, it's an old, it's a father and his son, right? And the son decides to try and poison Dewey, mm -hmm. or her mother-in-law, <laughs> to try and, um, you know, and then they're like, then we'll be able to convince them, whatever. Uh, but instead ends up, ends up sort of, poisoning his own dad the son ends up poisoning his okay. own dad um and with dewey's broth that she made um and so basically <laughs> um she gets accused of this murder and she says she didn't do it and they're like well if you won't admit to doing it we're gonna torture your we're gonna torture you and she's like that's fine and they're like okay we're gonna torture your mother-in-law and of course she can't let that happen because you know, she's honor bound to like protect her mother in law. Yeah. So she says, Well, I'll confess as long as you don't torture my mother in law. <laughs> um, but I didn't do it. So they execute her. And as she's awaiting her execution, she says, um, that I'm innocent and you're going to know it because there are going to be a few miracles that are going to happen. When I die, she's going to be beheaded. Um, the blood will fly up onto these banners here around. Then there will be a drought for several years. Mm -hmm. In the region, and there will be snow in midsummer. Okay, which is where the English title comes from. Um, and so, sure enough, all these things happen, <laughs> and then her dad returns, looking for her. You know, a couple decades later, he's become like a big bureaucrat. He's really important. Um, he's looking for his daughter, mm -hmm. and so he has also come to the city first, looking for his daughter, but also he's heard that they're having some trouble, so he's going to help out. You know. And basically, she shows up as a ghost to him oh. and tells him everything that happened. Okay. Um, and says, like, she's responsible for all the stuff that's been going on, for the snow in midsummer, for the drought. This is all her mm -hmm. proving her innocence. <laughs> um, and so, you know, sure enough, they figure it all out. Um, she makes him promise to take care of her mother-in-law. So he does. He agrees to. Uh, they find the, you know, the son who did everything and convict him and hang him and, yeah. you know, everything is put right. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a great play. It's a female ghost play. This is, of course, China. So this is, um, you know, what we would today think of as Chinese opera. Um, and, you know, the sort of wonderful thing is about it that she she's not a hero. I mean, she is a hero. She's our hero. <laughs> um, but she's just an ordinary person. Right? She's an ordinary woman trying to live a good life. <laughs> Um, who is not allowed to, basically, um, but does, right, as much as she can. 
um, and therefore ends up, you know, she comes back as a ghost to make sure that justice is served, <laughs> but also that, you know, people are properly taken care of, like her mother-in-law. Um, yeah, so, you know, those are those are fun sort of ghost plays yeah. that we get. Um, and I think we have maybe barely enough time to talk about one of the final categories. Um, this is sort of different from werewolves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and different from, like, yokai, which are monsters. And there's some great scrolls um, with with said monsters. Yeah. This is the Japanese word. Um, yeah, do you want to mention something? Oh, yeah. Um, well, the one that we uh, that I came across was the Bakemono no E, um, which mm-hmm. is basically, you know, there's a medieval tradition of, like, bestiaries, um, which are books with like, very illustrated books that sort of de- depicted different animals and things. Um, yep. And so this is, like, a monster bestiary. Um, mm-hmm. It's currently held at the library at BYU, which is kind of yes. weird. Uh, but, you know, fair enough. And it depicts, like, 35 different um, supernatural creatures. So... Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of neat. Yeah. And it's, I mean, Japan clearly had a, clearly had a legacy of this, Mm -hmm. right? Because the Hungry Ghost Scroll, for example. Yeah. So scrolls of, you know, known mythical or supernatural creatures. (laughs) Yeah. Monsters, basically. So the one that, the one that BYU has, I should say, is like a little bit more modern. Um, like maybe it's from the 17th or 18th century. But... It the uh, things that it collects go back a lot farther. So, yes. yeah, and can be found on other scrolls, mm-hmm. but not necessarily all together. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, in addition to all of these sorts of monsters and beasties and so on, um, I think a final category that we should talk about that we haven't quite got to yet is the idea of sort of supernatural beings <laughs> um, who are not demons, basically. Um, but also not transformative like a werewolf. Mm-hmm. They aren't people who turn into things, right? Um, and so we have um, in Japan again, for example, um, the fox is frequently thought of as one of these creatures, right? So a fox, um, it was thought that there were certain types of fox <laughs> that essentially could live very long time and be very wise, Right. Um, so, you know, a certain type of fox that could live sort of for like 500 years and had incredible supernatural power. Um, and it could appear as a person. It could talk. It could do all of these things. Um, but again, it is a fox. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not a person who can turn into a fox. It's also not a fox who can necessarily really turn into a person. It's a fox who can appear as a person. Okay. Right. And sort of, and when appearing as a person, can potentially do things that people can do, right? Like fight with swords and stuff. Um, so, but that's, right, but it's a sort of power of its transformation. It's not the sense of, again, a werewolf is a person who then also is sometimes a wolf. But when they're a wolf, they like live as a wolf mm-hmm. and then they turn back, right? Um, this is something the fox can do because of its power, mm-hmm. right? It has so much sort of wisdom and knowledge and power. That it can it can transform itself into a person if it needs to, walk around, talk, do things, yeah. transform itself okay. back. <laughs> um, and so this type of um, creature is 
you know, not all creatures can Mm -hmm. do it. The fox is special. But this sort of idea is something that certainly exists um, in a lot of cultures. But um, in Japan, of course, uh, the extent to which Shinto sort of, you know, existed before, but then also with Buddhism, um, very much a sense of the natural world as having power. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, there's a great story that's a, it's a kabuki play, but also a bunraku play, puppets, um, Yoshitsune and the Thousand Cherry Trees. Yoshitsune is, again, one of the heroes of these wars that we were talking about earlier. I like that title, too. Yes. <laughs> um, but there's one scene in it, or one sort of series of scenes, where um, this sort of a warrior who is a sort of friend and servant of Yoshitsune um, has been guarding his girlfriend... Um, and they're supposed to reunite. Um, and when they do, um, Yoshitsune realizes that his friend had been with him, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So someone's an imposter. Mm. And it turns out that the person guarding his girlfriend was actually a fox. Um, and he's been guarding the girlfriend because... Yoshitsune had been given this present from the emperor, basically, and um, it was a drum. It was this very special drum, and he gave the drum to his girlfriend. And the drum, it turns out, was made from the fox's parents. Ooh. Okay. Yes. And the fox says he was just a very young fox when this happened, and he didn't know any better. Um, but, you know, now he's, like, over 500. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's super old. But at the time, he was, like, maybe only a few hundred years old. Okay. And he was too young to really know. But um, he said he... But then he realized, of course, you know, he may be only a fox, but he knows how you should honor your mm-hmm. parents. So um, he's left his own family alone forever and ever to try and get this drum back. But it had always been in the palace, mm-hmm. and he couldn't get in the palace. But then, when it was given to Yoshitsune, and then Yoshitsune gave it to his girlfriend, then the fox had access to it so he's been following it and the girlfriend's been playing it occasionally right so he guarded her sort of in his attempts to get it um and at the end of sort of this one major scene that he's in um he actually warns them about some coming danger he fights off some people you know or he says he's gonna go fight off these people um so he sort of saves them again um and in return they give him the boom Hmm. yeah nice but, yes, so it's a great story. Um, but also, it, of course, involves the actor transforming between person and fox, if it's kabuki. Um, if it's bunraku, then, of course, the puppet. Mm-hmm. But there's this, right, so this great sense of um, the power of animals, right? Uh, and that's a little bit different. There's a um, really well-known legend in China of the white snake. Um, but the white snake is a kind of immortal being Mm -hmm. who is also a snake, but is an immortal being. So isn't an ordinary snake. Okay. I mean, the fox isn't an ordinary fox either, but isn't a deity or, you know, is, is a fox. It's just a special type of fox, right? He's Um, not like coyote. He's just a fox, but he's a fox who's very smart. Yes. Um, So, you know, some, some foxes like him, he refers to sort of ordinary foxes who like live in the country. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So not all foxes live to be 500 or a thousand years old and have magic powers, but, but some do. Um, But yeah, so the legend of white snake, um, she really is a sort of immortal entity, Um, but she, 
transforms herself to a human. Occasionally, he comes down to Earth with her friend, who's a green snake. Um, and one of their trips, she falls in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's an evil monk who just believes that an uh, immortal entity being with a mortal is wrong, wrong, wrong. And so he tries to separate them. And there's lots of great fighting. Um, and then, you know, I won't sort of go through the whole thing, but um, it's a great legend. It's also in Chinese opera. It's in all sorts of things, so you can find it. Um, but that's a sort of also interesting reminder, right? That, um, again someone who theoretically would be very dangerous, mm-hmm. right? A sort of immortal entity who's, who's a snake, <laughs> um, but is in fact the force for good, really, um, as is the green snake in most versions. In a lot of versions, the green snake ultimately has to save the white snake. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, and in this case, the, the monk is sort of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually a great addition to the legend that, um, White Snake, basically the reason she, she manages to sort of save her husband, but she can't fully save everything. He gets, he manages to escape. Like she creates this flood. He manages to escape. Um, but she sort of is, she doesn't have the power she would because she's pregnant. Um, and so then she ends up having their kid. It's a tough time. But the monk, (laughs) yes, but the monk finds her and like buries her under a mountain and she can't get out because she's been weakened. Um, but Green Snake eventually comes to save her. And then the monk turns himself into a crab. And scuttles away. Okay. Or something like that. He turns himself into something, scuttles away. He gets eaten by a crab. That's what happens. Ah, okay. What does he turn himself into? I don't know. He gets eaten by a crab. And this is why crabs, or at least sometimes of crabs, are orange inside. Because that was the color of the robe he wore. Oh, okay. Was orange. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> so in portrayals of this, he's usually wearing black and orange. Um, because those are his symbolic evil colors. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, again, right, a reminder of the ways in which the monsters, you know, they're not always evil, I guess, is the way to put it. I wonder, because I think um, that... There are a lot of variations. The white snake mm-hmm. is um, related to the eight immortals who are sort of like Taoist, revered That's quite people. possible. Mm-hmm. And if he's wearing an orange robe, it sounds like he might be Buddhist. I don't know. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I mean, yeah. I was just in really early versions. White Snake um, is not necessarily as good, um, but it transformed very quickly into a romance mm-hmm. story, where the monk is the evil one for trying to keep them uh. separate. Even though we understand his view, but he's clearly mm-hmm. wrong. I mean, sometimes people, you know, right, love, etc., blah blah, conquers all. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah, maybe normally immortals shouldn't marry mortals, but like, you know, sometimes it happens. Yeah. That's interesting because um that's you said that the story itself is quite old. Yeah. And I know that in the West we don't always have stories of people who are married because of romantic love. Um or who are together mm-hmm. because of romantic love or, you know, before the sh- right. Well, I don't know. The- well, it depends, right? Because you have things like um, Dionysus finds Ariadne on an mm-hmm. island uh, where she's been left by <laughs> Theseus, <laughs> presumably. I mean, she gets left by... Th- we should save some of these for an episode for Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, we should. Yeah. 
But anyway, but he, you know, then the funny thing about Dionysus is despite all of the stuff that he's the god of, um, he's one of the few who's absolutely faithful to his mm-hmm. lover. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it just depends. Like, romantic love, people say stupid crap like this all the time. <laughs> like, oh, there wasn't romantic love until Jane Austen or some BS like that. I think there was a whole New York Times article. I don't know. Years ago now. But people say that stupid stuff all the time. And the thing is, in reality, romantic love has always right. been around as far back in literature really as you can go. But so has every other type of sex or relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've always been competing. Right. And you have always had the problem of, you know... It wasn't until relatively wanna... recently that you, as a woman, or a human, honestly, could make your own decision about who you might marry, as opposed to, like, having it be very... Well, more of a political yeah. thing, depending. Sort of. But sort of, Again, no, sort of, right? Because there definitely are women who chose for mm-hmm. love. I mean, there are stories of them all back in the... You know. Um, and... And also men, of course. I mean, all the way through the Middle Ages. You know, frequently you get mm-hmm. punished <laughs> um, because you were supposed to have married someone else. But, you know, these stories absolutely exist forever and ever. But yeah, of course, in reality, it wasn't always that easy. But it also frequently isn't that easy in the mm-hmm. stories, right? Where you might get punished um, or, you know, you get disinherited or, you know, all the things that could happen in real yeah. life as well. Right? Um and it's worth full circle, right? Mary Shelley. Ah, yes. Reigning Frankenstein. Yes. You know, in the summer that wasn't... The that year wasn't without a summer. Basically. Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, her dad did not approve of her running off with Shelley. Yes. Yeah, but there they were. So, <laughs> you know. Um, Is it they ran off together before his first wife had died? Potentially? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Definitely, because they were a thing, and I believe his first wife committed suicide. Yeah. Which, yeah. incidentally, um, Shelley's mother had attempted, right? But then she actually wound up dying in childbirth later. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, Mary Shelley was the daughter of a very independent mm-hmm. woman. Mary Wollstonecraft. Right? Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah. Um and so it's interesting sort of I mean she maintained the independence mm-hmm. <laughs> she was a fantastic writer in her own right obviously Mary Shelley but also yeah ran off with a guy who was a poet I mean yeah. you know sometimes you you can kind of have it all she didn't quite because he died young but um, they were all mixed up with Byron too and I think oh absolutely maybe her stepsister got knocked up with Byron's kid. Anyway, there's a whole yep. thing going on. If you're looking for yes. a decent soap opera to keep you occupied on a winter's day, look these yep. people up because it was yes. very exciting. But you can also see, right, Frankenstein comes from a lot of these ideas, right? Love versus death. What do we owe our creations mm-hmm. Who are basically our children. Yeah. Right? But also, what do we owe the world at large? You know, all the questions that superstition and monsters and demons are supposed to sort of answer. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yay! Well, on that note, um, we hope that you've enjoyed this series on uh, supernatural beings. Let's see. 
we'll be back probably two weeks from when this comes out with another episode on uh, regular medieval things of a less supernatural bent, but it'll still be really awesome. So uh, catch us up on iTunes or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Uh, Check our Facebook page, which is Ask a Medievalist, or our website, which is the same thing with a .com at the end. Tweet at us. um, You know, whatever. We'll answer if you send us questions. Yep. (laughs) Eventually we'll get back to you. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Even if it waits until a semester break. So uh, until then, I hope you all had a very happy Halloween and uh, got plenty of peanut butter cups or whatever you happen to like. And uh, just keep on washing your hands and keep it medieval. Hey, medievalists and fans, this is M jumping back in here at the end. This podcast is about to go live just a few days before the U.S. election. If your life has been anything like mine, you've been bombarded with notifications that you can vote absentee or by mail, vote early in person, leave your ballots in a drop box, vote in person on the actual election day, Almost every application on my phone has given me a helpful pop-up about making a plan for voting at this point, including one I use to track my running, which I believe is promising some sort of special badge if I run to the polling place and back. So this feels almost superfluous to add, but I think it's important. When we discuss history, it often feels like stuff was bad in the past and now things are less bad, so that's progress right there, Uh, and therefore progress is inevitable. But I don't think that's an accurate assessment. Progress happens when it happens at all because people are willing to change and uh, to do things that cause change, to protest, to petition those in power in various ways, and to vote, among other things. To that end, I wanted to share an old joke that has been on my mind since the beginning of this pandemic. An old man's house is in the path of a flood that's expected to be quite bad. As the waters start to rise, one of his neighbors comes by in a canoe and says, uh, hey, Shlomo, do you need any help evacuating? And Shlomo says, no, I, I put my faith in God. He'll protect me. And the neighbor says, okay, and goes away. A few hours pass, and the waters have risen so that Shlomo needs to go to the second floor. A bunch of Boy Scouts come by in a motorboat and say, hey, mister, do you need any help? And Shlomo says, no, I'm fine. God will help me. And so they go on their way. A few hours after that, the water has risen to the point where old Shlomo is out on the roof. A helicopter comes by, and someone shouts over the loudspeaker, Sir, this area is being evacuated. We can lower a ladder for you. And Shlomo says, No need. I have always served God, and he will protect me. And so the helicopter flies away. Well, (laughs) you see where this is going. Shlomo drowns. And as he stands before God, he says, Why did you forsake me? I was always such a faithful follower of your word. And you let me die. And God says, Shlomo, I sent two boats and a helicopter. So I hope you won't just trust that progress will happen. Instead, I hope you get out and vote. As we say in Chicago, vote early, vote often, and vote Democrat up and down your ticket. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween, and happy All Saints Day to all. Happy Dias de los Muertos. And keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. 
performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 